This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. All right, today our passage is from Isaiah 19 and 20. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each, each against each other and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom, and the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out. And I will confound their counsel, and they will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers. And I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. And the waters of the sea will be dried up, and the river will be dry and parched, and its canals will become foul, and the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile, on the brink of the Nile, and all that is sown by the Nile will be parched, will be driven away, and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament, all who cast a hook in the Nile, and they will languish who spread nets on the water. The workers in combed flax will be in despair, and the weavers of white cotton. Those who are the pillars of the land will be crushed, and all who work for pay will be grieved. The princes of Zone are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zone have become fools, and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds, as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed, may do. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women, and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. And that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they'll make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they'll return to the Lord. And he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Chapter 20. Um, In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, 
Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered. Just lost my spot. (laughs) Here we go. The nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and and of Egypt their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? This is the word of the Lord. You know, it's going to be a good morning when scripture reader says buttocks (laughs) on the stage. So good morning, Emmaus. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ben, and I serve here on staff as a liturgy deacon. Um, and so, yeah, I just want to take a moment to, uh, if you're joining us for the first time, maybe in person or online, uh, but we started again in the book of Isaiah in the second uh, part of the series that we're calling His Presence and His Judgments. And so this morning, um, just before I jump into the text, I just want to take a moment to pray, um, just to invite this spirit to be working in our hearts as we dive into uh, the text today. So would you pray with me? God, this morning we want to come to you um, in humility. Um, God, when we, when we read things like this in your word, we, we see how seriously you take sin. Um, so God, I pray that just in light of this passage that you would give us eyes to see your glory. You give us ears to hear your wisdom and your word brought to us. Um, Yeah, give us hearts to receive what you have to say to us. Um, Amen. Amen. So, Spirit, just be at work in this room this morning. And Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So I just want to take a moment to, to share again what we mean by judgments. I think often... When we hear the word judgment, um, there's some baggage that comes with that word, especially in preaching. Um, And I think oftentimes when we hear judgment, we automatically assume wrath. (laughs) We automatically assume anger and fire and brimstone (laughs) and some of those things. Um, But I want to clarify what we're talking about when we say judgment. So um, we've shared this definition before the past couple weeks, but judgment is the ability to make considered decisions or come to sensible conclusions. That's kind of the dictionary definition they're talking about. And I just want to clarify again that wrath and anger can be an outcome of a decision. They can be an outcome of one of God's judgments for his people, but they aren't the the complete definition of God judging the world because God also makes judgments about the mercy that he'll give to us. God makes judgments about who he loves, who he calls his people. And so I just want us to be clear, when we're, we're talking about judgments, it's not always wrath, um, although in, in the case today, it is, <laughs> but it's not, it's not always. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and just again, just as Aaron was already saying, that our hope for this series isn't just to, to look at all the ways that God is displaying his wrath in the Bible and, and to just say, like, 
we need to get on board with like an angry God <laughs> necessarily. I mean, we do need to take his word seriously and we do need to wrestle with the things that, that bring God to anger. But more than anything, our hope for this series is that we would learn to start practicing God's presence more. That, that we would take a zoomed out look and ask the questions of why. What makes God angry? Why? What is his, what is his motivation for his wrath in Isaiah and the reason that he's sending Isaiah to his people? And, and I think that when we, when we draw closer to the presence of God, when we start to understand the motivations of his heart, we start to see his true character, what God really has for us. And that's, and that's what we mean by his judgments. What, what are the things that God is proclaiming over this world that we need to see? And so that's where we're going. Um, and, I, and I think when we wrestle with this word and when we wrestle with what we're talking about today, um, if we're actually on board with, with listening to God and his judgments, it can make us uncomfortable. <laughs> um, and I was thinking about that in light of this passage um, and just even what Aaron was talking about last week in his sermon, this idea that the scripture is really clear on this, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Part of God's judgments, part of God's decree on this world is his right to decide who he opposes and who he will give grace to. And a lot of that depends on our pride and our humility. If we see him as right to judge us or not. And I think that makes us uncomfortable. And I think when we boil down, we are uncomfortable with God being just. We're uncomfortable with God being the one who has the right to judge. We want to be the judge, jury, and executioner of the things in our lives, of the things around us. And I think it's kind of ironic that we're uncomfortable with God being just um, because, yeah, we're, we're so uncomfortable with God being just, actually being sovereign enough to define what is right and wrong, who defines what a sensible conclusion is, that we either cram him into whatever box we want him to fit in most, that makes us the least uncomfortable, that makes us the most right. We either do that or we deny his existence altogether. We deny that it's possible for an external force to decide what's good and what's right for our lives or for this world. The truth is that God has every right to be the judge and every right to do justice. And, and I say that it's ironic that we're uncomfortable with God because we want justice. People crave justice, but we aren't just. We ourselves are not just. God and his holiness and his perfection is just. You know, just even as I was processing my sermon with Aaron this week. Um, we, were, we were talking about the trial of Derek Chauvin and just and talking about the justice of God. And you know, it's how, how many of us have celebrated with a lot of people that he was convicted? Like, we celebrate that and we say like, yes, like justice is happening, like wrath, like he's getting what he deserves. And then I ask how many people or on the other side of that. <laughs> How many people weren't celebrating? And, you know, we, the truth is that we don't have a unified view of justice. 
there, there are things that sometimes we get right. There, when, when sometimes our justice does line up with God's justice, but it's not 100%. And the truth is we aren't just because we're not unified in it. We, we can't come to perfect, sensible conclusions in the way that God does. So the, the thing that happens when we do that, when we, when we decide that in our pride that we are capable of justice, that we're capable of making the right judgments, we become prideful. We, and essentially, are trying to play God. And I think that's what we, I want to unpack uh, in this, this couple of chapters today, that, that it's true, unequivocally true, that God opposes the proud. When we try to play God, he will oppose it. But when we walk in God's presence and humility, he offers us grace. And so I think when we're looking at this passage in Isaiah 19 and 20, we, we're seeing really clearly where God is opposing them in their pride and where God offers them grace in their humility. So I want to jump in and kind of unpack that today. So, uh, verse 1 in chapter 19. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. And the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians. And they will fight, each against another and each against his neighbor. City against city. Kingdom against kingdom. Um, so right off the bat, I think it's safe to say that God is not happy that his people have run to Egypt. And it's interesting, um, just in doing my study, his, the law actually forbids his people to turn to Egypt. He tells Israel never to turn again to Egypt for aid. And I think it's this idea that God, we see in Scripture that God is jealous for his people. God wants Israel to remember what he did to bring them out of slavery, that God is their source of hope. God is their salvation. Amen. Amen. But here they are. <laughs> They're back in Egypt. And if you know much about the story of Israel, um, it's actually not that hard to believe because pretty much as soon as they got out of Egypt, they're complaining about their circumstances and saying like, oh, like how it was in Egypt. We had spices <laughs> for our meats. <laughs> it wasn't just manna. <laughs> You know, it's just the, the Israelites were turning on God and his presence and the things that he was bringing about for their goodness, every chance that they got. So this isn't really new behavior we're seeing here. And so I think when we look at this and we see, you know, if, if Isaiah is speaking to Israel and this oracle is for Israel, then why is all this, and Israel is doing the wrong thing by flame from God. Why is God bringing judgment on Egypt? And I, I kind of understand it as a twofold thing. One, Egypt had an opportunity to repent. When God brought his people out of Egypt, it was very clear <laughs> that God was in control, that God was the one who held the power. But the Egyptians didn't repent. They counted their losses, and they kept on going in their own pride as a nation. And I think God is just to punish that sin. I think the other thing, too, is 
Um, you know, just what I was saying, like, that God is jealous for his people. If, if there is a force, if there is something that is dividing God's people's attention away from him, he is jealous to remove it. He is jealous to say, if, if you're gonna turn to Egypt for hope, I will remove it. I will remove that hope because I am jealous for my people to turn back to me and declare again that I am God, that I am just, that I am your hope. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Um, and so when I look at this, and, and we are talking about God opposing the proud, um, I think too that, that Egypt has a pride issue. And there are things that, that Israel is looking to Egypt and their pride and saying, these are the things that Egypt is proud of and these are the things that will give us security and safety. And God is wanting to remove those things <laughs> because he's jealous for his people. And I think when we look at these first couple of verses, the first thing I think of is strength. That God is opposing Egypt's pride and their strength. He's opposing their military might. The, the fact that Egypt was a significant military power in that day. And in the, in the language we see here, God riding on a cloud is a significant um, military thing. The, the idea that the, their fortified walls, that their natural defenses, like the Nile River and the sea next to them, that, that none of those things can protect them from an enemy that's raining from above. Because, you know, they didn't necessarily have helicopters or planes <laughs> with bombs back then. <laughs> Maybe if you shot an arrow really high, you might get over a wall. But what Isaiah is trying to convey here is saying, you have no strength. There is nothing you can do to oppose the judgment that God is bringing on you through the Assyrians. You know, he says, their hearts will melt within them. There's not gonna be any bravery left. But by the time they realize how doomed they are, it'll be too late. And there will be no courage left. Not only that, but they will be so cowardly and afraid. When Assyria comes, they will turn against each other. They'll be so afraid that brothers, neighbors, cities, kingdoms, or other word for provinces, they will be divided in fear. If Israel was holding on hope in Egypt's pride, it's gonna fade, and God's gonna make sure of it. Then look with me in, uh, in verses three and four. It says, and the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel. They will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers, and the mediums and the necromancers, and I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord of hosts. Again, God is opposing their pride. But this time, it's not just their military strength. It's their cunning. It's their wisdom. Two things you need to be to be a successful culture. <laughs> and I think back to when Moses was going up against Pharaoh. And he was in, the, in Pharaoh's courts. And God was having him do signs. And Pharaoh's magicians were always trying to copy, always try to, to reproduce, to say, our gods are as powerful as your God. And there's one instance where God had Moses turn his staff into a serpent. And the, the magicians tried to copy it, and they, and they did successfully. But then Moses' serpent ate theirs. <laughs> like, totally overruled it. And I think that's the picture we're seeing here again, is that God is saying, I will confound your counsel. Your wisdom that you boast in, your power, 
the, the things you look, the unnatural evil things you look to in sorcery and necromancers, they hold no power against my power. It's useless wisdom. And, and he's saying, when you are in the hands of a hard master, when you're in the hands of Assyria, like my people were in your hard hands, you will be humbled. Israel's false hope is going to fade when they see Egypt like that. And Isaiah doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop at their strength and their wisdom. Everything we read in verses 5 all the way through 15, describing all the destruction and, and the drying up of the Nile, he's going into this metaphorical detail. Not that the Nile is actually going to dry up, but he's saying the devastation is going to happen to you by the hands of Assyria will be so severe that it will be as if the Nile dried up. You will have nothing to boast in, nothing to brag about. All the things that it were to your advantage as a culture won't matter anymore because you will be in the hands of a hard master. You know, even saying, those you look to, Pharaoh, princes of Zone, and their wisdom, where is the wisdom in those men? says it's going to be revealed as useless. And he caps it off in verse 15. He says, there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. Nothing they have. No one of any level of authority is going to stop God's judgment. And I want to ask, how do we apply this to us today? Now, Aaron said this a couple times in the last couple of sermons, but everything that's happening here, everything spoken to God's people and the prophets is even more true for those who are in Christ. That the, the word of God revealed over time finds its fruition in Jesus, finds its truest sense in Jesus. So when we read this, when we read this truth that God opposes the pride of Egypt, God is opposing Israel's false hope in the things of this world. How do we read what we just read for ourselves? And I think it starts by asking this. Do I see myself in Egypt's pride? Are there things in my life that I'm relying on, boasting in, in my own strength, my own ability to keep me from embracing humility? Are there circumstances in my life where I'm relying on my own wisdom or even the world's and not on the wisdom of the Spirit in me? I think those are things we need to wrestle with. If this destruction, if this opposition of God is, is true for Egypt, not as true, truer for us than it is for Egypt, we need to take that seriously. And if I'm being honest, I often struggle with pursuing God's presence and seeing his judgments as just. I am not often comfortable with humiliation in light of God's holiness. It's just true, I'm not. So let me throw a bone to all my Enneagram people out there. Um, for, for those of you who are familiar with Enneagram, I'm a pretty solid type six. Um, and to explain that a little bit, for those of you who aren't familiar, 
Um, a lot of my thoughts dwell on the what ifs. They dwell on the what could have beens. Um, they they dwell on scenarios, <laughs> thinking through all the options, uh, whether past or present or future. And uh, there was one time Sarah and I were having dinner with the Clarkins over at our house, and somehow we got on that topic and and got on just talking about how uh, all of us kind of process things differently. Um, and, and Becca and I kind of discovered that we're both sixes. And so I, I just started talking about all the, all the ways that I process things and how I, I'm like spinning through worst case scenarios and like everyday stuff of life. Like I'm out on a walk with Mava and I'm thinking of like all the scenarios of like all the things that could like potentially happen like as we're out on a walk, like in our quiet neighborhood. <laughs> just like ridiculous things. And I was, I was kind of sharing all those scenes and I was looking at Becca and she's like nodding her head like, yes. <laughs> I totally get this. It's like totally me. And it was just funny, but, you know, we were kind of thinking about that and, and just even in processing that in light of this text, I think that um, the truth is that I don't trust Jesus that often with my life. I, I think when, when those thoughts start to spin, I start thinking about, if I can just think of all the things, if I can figure all the stuff out, if I can make sense of my past, places I've failed, I can prevent those things in the future, I can have control of my circumstances, maybe even I can determine what's just about things that have been wrong in the past. I can rely on my own strength. If I can change X, Y, or Z, I'll have more security next time. I could be enough for the people around me next time. The truth is I'm not in control of any of it. None of us are. I'm not sovereign. And uh, my friend was reminding me the other day, uh, yeah, in my sin, I'll never be enough. I can't figure out all the things. I can't make enough right decisions. I can't make enough right judgments in my life to measure up to God. Even if I made only right decisions from now until I die, the wages of sin, all sin, any sin, is death. God is right to make that judgment on his people because he is holy, and I am in that judgment. But I can respond to God's judgments. I can respond to that judgment in my life and the world around me with humility. I can become comfortable with humiliation. I can become comfortable with saying, I'm not enough. I recognize that. I can't think of all the things and somehow make sense and somehow make everything right. But I can be comfortable with the humility to say, God, I'm not enough. Therefore, I need you. I desperately need you. All of us can in the spirit because we know that God gives grace to the humble. He doesn't oppose us in our humility. He opposes us in our pride, but he gives grace to the humble. And wouldn't you rather receive God's grace than his opposition? <laughs> After reading this, I would, <laughs> with God's bringing on Egypt. 
So how do we access that grace? What does it look like to, to oppose our own pride and to walk in humility? I think, again, God is showing us the way here through Egypt. And I think it starts with repentance. So let's read this next section. Verse 19. It says, in that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship the sacrifice an offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. They will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. This is what repentance looks like. It's not a picture of God taught me red-handed. It was blind my own strength and pride. I will not do the right things. It's a picture of genuine faith, genuine worship, a turning and always will be God's ultimate goal for his judgments, the reconciliation of his people to himself. Amen. Amen. Us to God, God to us, and us to each other. It's God's goal, every judgment whether it's a judgment of wrath or mercy, God wants reconciliation because he is jealous. He's jealous for his people. And what we see here is a glimpse of the new covenant in Christ, that he's not just jealous for Israel. He's jealous for all those in Christ, Egypt and Assyria, us celebrating and being a part of the blessing of the original promise to Israel. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 2, verse 12. Remember, you at that time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, You who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Once when we were far off, we have access. There has been a highway made to the Father through Christ. You know, even looking at ver- or verse, looking at chapter 20, it can be odd for us to see God command Isaiah to do what he did, to walk around naked for three years just so everyone could have a picture of what Egypt and Cush will look like and what their false hope will amount to. And we can look at that and we can say, that's kind of awkward for everyone involved. (laughs) And maybe even kind of harsh. 
But look again. Three years he walked around. God could have brought destruction whenever he wanted. But he gave them time. In his mercy, in his judgment of mercy and judgment of wrath, he gave them a chance to repent. So he sent his people a prophet, a pastor, walking by way of humility to demonstrate their need to repent and believe. Does that not sound familiar? Who else spent three years preaching repentance and faith and of a new kingdom to come and poverty and humility? Who ultimately ended up naked in humiliation? Sounds like Jesus to me. And may as God opposes the proud, we can be sure of it, but we can also be sure that he gives grace to the humble. The grace that comes by faith as a gift from God. When we were once far off, we were brought near. When we once put our hope in our own strength and wisdom and the foolishness of this world, we were enemies of God. And now we face that wall of hostility placed by our sin as a pile of rubble. Because Jesus, who didn't account equality with God something to be grasped, humbled himself. We don't have access to the Father without the total, utter humiliation of Jesus on the cross. And we know what happens when we rely on the false hope of this world. In chapter 20, verse 5, he says, They shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and Egypt, their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered in the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? What hope is there in the world? Is it in our careers? Security? Is our bank account mighty to save? Are we relying on the infallible perspective of the left or the right? There's so many things to place our hope in. So many saviors to turn to. And in our pride, we often turn to ourselves, or at least the world around us. But what could be greater than having access to the Father, to the author of hope himself? Amen. Amen. Emmaus, we want to turn, like Israel, we want to turn to our former masters. We are more comfortable with continuing on in sin. We are more comfortable with relying on ourselves or relying on the false hope of this world than we are to bend our knees and to raise our hands and say, I am not enough, but Jesus, you are. There is more 
justice. There's more peace, more access to joy in Christ than there ever will be in the world. Egypt is not the better hope. Jesus is. We are no longer slaves. We are children of God. And we need to embrace that reality. We need to embrace that identity. If we are ever going to see God as the one who is right to judge, if we are going to see God as the only one who has sensible conclusions <laughs> to the brokenness of this world. So may us my, my prayer this morning is that you and I would be comfortable, would embrace humility, that we wouldn't just say that we love mercy and we want justice, but refuse to walk in humility, but that we would embrace it, that we would walk in humility into the very presence of God, even if that means a refinement, even if that means a little pain for future glory. So may us, would we together embrace that truth that we are not enough, but Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, I confess this morning that I often rely on my own strength. God, in my, my sin, I want to be enough. I want to have things figured out. God, it's, it's easier for me to, to rely on the things in front of me, to love the creation more than the creator. So I pray that you, Jesus, through your example, through your sacrifice, would humiliate me. That, Jesus, you would bring us to our knees so that we could confess that every knee would bow Every tongue confess that you are Lord. Amen. That we wouldn't just say that we repent to do the right things and gain the right favor. But God, that our, our turning from our pride would be genuine faith that you are better than anything else we cling to. Jesus, you are good and you're great to save. And it's in your name and by your work we pray. Amen.